a heavy sled is such a good teaching and training tool. It like it trains the physical qualities necessary to increase your ratio of force, your horizontal impulse. And it also makes you feel really dumb if you don't do it right. And I think that's such a great coaching tool. Like what's what's better than like feeling stupid when you've done it wrong? Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is all about speed training for youth athletes. So we've pulled together three experts, Alan Murdoch, John Garish, and Michal Cahill, to discuss this topic. So we've got, how does it differ training youth athletes versus adult athletes? Then we've got, which is a common problem in all sports and all scenarios, but especially in youth, with youth populations, is dealing with large groups. How can we coach speed, maximize time, maximize adaptation and coaching and teaching with large groups? Then we have a little chat around resisted speed training and how that can be used as a coaching tool as well as a training tool. So a really interesting episode with three experts who have got incredible amounts of experience in this area. And we also finish off with a Q&A based on some questions that were put into us on Twitter and Instagram. So a really interesting episode if you're working with youth athletes and you want to develop speed. This episode of the Pacer Performance Podcast is sponsored by Vald. So I'm really proud to have Vald as a sponsor again. And after a recent visit to Vald HQ in Brisbane for their annual Vildcon event, it's incredible to see how far they've come as a company since I last visited uh, at the start of 2018. So from a very humble office of less than 20 employees back then, it's amazing to see how far they've come. They now employ a global team of more than 200 that support clients across 100 countries, including many of the world's elite and professional sporting organizations. So an incredible uh, rise to where they are now. So this is a huge testament to just the impact they're having across the industry with their innovation, but also continued commitment to support clients. So if you're a performance practitioner, you probably know all about Vald, but if not, I'd recommend that you check them out at valdperformance.com. Also sponsoring this episode is Rock Daisy. Rock Daisy's athlete management system provides a powerful competitive advantage to elite sports leagues around the world. If you're looking for a solution that enables you to centralize, analyze, and visualize your data, check out rockdaisy.com and sign up for a free trial. So without further ado, over to the episode with Alan, John, and Michal. So we're going to go straight to Alan first. So first question, what are the key differences when coaching speed to youth athletes versus adults? I think that'll kick us off quite nicely for this topic. Yeah, so you sent me this question before, um, and I was really thinking hard about it. I was like, is it different or is it not different? And I was, I came back to the kind of conclusion that in principle, it's, it's really not that different. There's some fundamental principles that we utilize and coach towards. Um, and that means that it's still the same thing. So I, I was asking myself the question and when I think about acceleration, I'm thinking, well, can I go forwards and can I displace my hips maximally and project myself at an optimal angle and maximize my ratio of force, which is basically just inputting as much horizontal force into the total force I can produce and minimizing braking forces that allow me to, I guess, climb out of my acceleration and minimize my ground contact times, increase my air contact times and all the things that we associate with smooth data. Um, and then during upright running, 
um, it's really about a cycle. It's kind of prepare for the ground by separating my thighs and attack the ground really hard with a level of stiffness, which means that I don't compress and sink on landing um, and then reverse that movement and repeat the cycle over and over again. And then in terms of that, that's all framed within good positive posture that allows that energy transfer coming across our pelvis. And when I think about coaching kids and I think about coaching adults, I don't see there to be that much of a difference there. But how you deliver it is vastly, vastly different. And I think maybe most importantly for me, the things that you value are very, very different. So in terms of how you deliver it, kids don't really want to stand there for hours going through postural drills. Like that's boring and it disengages them. Um, but it is important. And then the other side of it is actually they just want to run fast and chase their mates and have a good time within the coaching session but there's still this element that you've got to provide an education so what we try and do is we I, I always have a few pictures saved to my saved to my phone um, and these are pictures of postures that have been drawn in cartoon style and we talk a lot about the shapes that we want to try and achieve the analogies and the the kind of metaphors that we can give them um, and all the while placing it in this environment that we actually we value technical change um, and their engagement in that technical change rather than the rather than the numbers. It really doesn't bother me too much if a 14 year old is running X or Y, as long as they're engaged and they can look at a screen and review their own uh, their own session and say, oh, well, my thighs are a bit closer at touchdown or actually I feel like my bum is more pushed through and they're happy to give peer review. Um, and then they're happy to judge themselves and get excited on technical change rather than just pure performance measures. I think that's where the difference lies. Um, and I think the biggest thing about that is that actually, if you inspire and install education in kids, that's when they really want to, you know, engage and come back. Because you could deliver the best technical session in the world, like you could nail everything. But if it's too boring and all you do is focus on, postures and and really really static work then i think you lose them if i'm honest and if you lose them it doesn't matter how good your session is because they aren't coming back to you so you never get to do it again anyway so it's all about fun and driving education for me that's it that's the biggest thing and the, and the fundamental principles are very similar just one question off the back of that before i let these guys uh me and, and john jump in at what point is technical mastery actually even considered like is there an age where it's just about having fun and, and, and try to run as fast as possible like i know that's not a uh, a clean cut answer like oh, as soon as they hit 11 like you start <laughs> yeah. caring about it yeah well, is there a general area where below, below 12 it's just about fun it's just about running fast we're not we don't actually care about technicalities you know i i think i'm almost I, i'm almost kind of going full circle on my own answer i actually think that there's an element of fun and education in every session that you do regardless of regardless of how old they are or how young they are like i still think even if you're even if you're coaching professional athletes there has to be an element of engagement and and, and almost that feeling of joy to be able to to make that change that technical change i think technical mastery is an interesting one i I personally think there's always something we can strive to be better at. So maybe that doesn't exist. Um, but certainly it's more biased towards fun and engaging and less about scrutinizing a video and looking at kinematics and data. The younger you are, 
But there is still an element of that in the coach's head when you're looking at a 12-year-old. It's just not popping up on a screen. You're recognizing that relatively they're not as strong. So the bandwidth for them to run well or technically well is a little bit less. Our foot's going to land a little bit more vertically because they don't have the relative strength qualities to propel themselves forwards as much. But we're still thinking about, okay, well, how can we help them understand how to maybe navigate themselves or orientate themselves a little bit more horizontal, reduce our contact times with our language. Um, but certainly there's an element of those two things in every session, I think. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure what the other guys think about that one, but that's that's certainly what I think. I don't think you're, I think you're right. There's not a clear cut answer. Like 12 years old, we go from just running after each other to like <laughs> now we're on the iPad and we're doing reviews. Yeah. Have you guys got any, Michal, John, any, any ideas on that? Any, any input? Feel free. Yeah. I mean, sorry, John, I'll go if you, um, I like, I like Alan's answer because, you know, the first thing to me, the forefront, especially dealing with kids is it, it has to be the coaching pedagogy and we don't, we're not coaching Excel spreadsheets. What is absolutely the best technical model in the world in an Excel spreadsheet if the, the athlete or the child isn't engaging in it, if they don't value it, it's not going to transcend regardless of the 50 step progression on the Excel spreadsheet. So I think that's, I totally agree with that. I, I probably go a little bit, an area that's close to me is some of the growth and maturational aspects within childhood. And, and, and one of the things I always say is that although we're trying to develop speed, we're also developing speed with the natural development of the central nervous system and even you know your gait being fully formed by eight. So fully agree with, with Aaron's responses. And that doesn't mean, in my opinion, that you, with Alan's response, sorry, that doesn't mean that you, you hone in and you get this very technical masterly model by a certain age. Because my thing is low structure, high velocity movements um, during that pre-peak height velocity kind of phase. And I think from a speed standpoint that we know they adapt well to, to plyometrics and sprinting being the greatest plyometric of all, that can actually prepare the muscle tendon unit more and better and you won't dampen their central nervous system pre-peak height velocity they'll spread top speed tons of reps and that in turn can actually prepare the tendons to be able to attenuate the forces that are going to be placed upon them during the growth spurt and the stresses that come with that and you know the last thing i'll add just differentiating between maturity the practical application stays the same and the coaching pedagogy will trump it but i think it important for the coaches just to be cognizant of maturity relate induced gains versus actual training induced games gains and i'm not sure if i can say this on this rob but my dad always said to me that a pat in the back is only six inches away from a kick up the arse so before the coaches are patting <laughs> themselves on the back with the training with the the gains they got it's important to differentiate how much maturity placed in that because we actually see that you know gains will go increase about three percent in sprint performance but at and after the growth spurt they get severed in half to less than a percent per year in sprint performance and that's when we need to get more structured so like alan said i'm much more low structure high velocity uh prepare them for the growth spurt journey and then as they age just like the ypd model we go from a low to a moderate to a more high structure as we start to see um different aspects one last thing on the maturity thing you know during the during the growth spurt again i i have a 10 I, I like some of the maturational stuff you could have one of these athletes go through uh adolescent awkwardness 
and you can try and implement all the technical drills in the world won't be able to compensate from the hips growing at a, or the legs growing at a dis disproportionate rate to the torso. So I just think I felt like just adding just with that, it's not only development of speed in youth, it's running parallel with the development of the actual child and the biological um, development of the central nervous system. We'll come back to that adolescent awkwardness in a minute, but John, were you, were you going to add something there? Yeah, and I know I know it's going to kind of bleed into the next question as well. Um, but largely in my role, I work with large groups um, and I'll work with groups. Potentially, it could go as as young as our lower school, which is talking about anywhere from maybe five to 10 years old. And then certainly in a larger capacity, our middle school, which will be, you know, 11 to 13 or 14. And then our high school is certainly from 14 to 18. And, you know, of course, in an ideal setting, in an ideal situation, we can work with somebody for longer than that. But I think one of the big things, especially in working with a large group, in addition to what these guys said, which hit on so many key points, is taking the opportunity now, there's still going to be those certain guidelines and rules and certain things I think we want to look for from a technical standpoint for everybody. The ways that we introduce it, the ways that we communicate it are absolutely going to be different. But also for us in, a, in an ideal situation where we are able to spend a great amount of time, meaning years with some of these, these young people, I think the big takeaway is really almost not so much in identifying what's, um, what's going to be best for them, but what our own reflection is going to um, uh, encourage us or, or show us about the ways that they move. So the more time that we have with them is more exposure to that athlete or to that group of athletes. Some of the things that we do are um, for the purpose of being able to identify a couple key movement signatures, a couple, uh, the more we coach them, the more we realize that certain words resonate, certain words don't. Maybe we'll keep that with us for um, a more extended period of time. So I think more so than just thinking, okay, when they hit the middle school age, which is going to be certainly different from a training standpoint of what they're doing in the lower school. When they hit high school, high school age, it's going to be different. Yeah, we're going to be talking a little more technical when they get to that age. It's more so, well, we see some of those movement signatures start to develop when they're in the sixth grade, 11 years old. Um, how does that come into the fold? How does that bear its head when they're a varsity level athlete or a potential future college athlete where we are um, discussing more technical, fine um, details um, and they're more advanced, more mature, able to handle some of that coaching? Um, because certain cues, certain um, technical models that might be a fit for one young man or woman is, is going to be completely different from somebody else. So to kind of like pigeonhole them in one, um, one age group or one time um, without really having a big picture idea about them, um, to me, would be a, a you know, misinformed decision. John, so, oh, go on, Alan. You were going to jump in there. Go on, mate. Yeah, I think that's such an awesome point. Like, speed, everybody sees speed as this one single thing. Like, it's just speed. But actually, it because it's the top of the the top of the pyramid in terms of what people can do as a complex system, um, it tells you so much about what they do as a person and where their limitations and their um, their kind of strengths lie. And I think that has such a huge influence if you um, are working with really young kids. And say you're working with a 13 year old and he is completely quad dominant and he just wants to use his quads to, to run and he has no posterior chain. He can't displace his hips. He wants to use his spine, all the stuff that you see really commonly. Um, well, actually, if, if I'm an SNC coach and I've got a good medical team around about me and enough support, then 
I think I'm going to start to make an intervention that moves towards the things that I can already see from the signatures that Sean's talking about. And I think that's when really high-end stuff starts to come in rather than just everybody doing the same thing and we all tick boxes. I think it does give you some really cool clues to what you should be doing as a coach. I was going to come to John on, on the, another point, but Alan and, and me, I'll feel free to jump in as well. So with these large groups, John, I see it, and we probably see it from the UK point of view, we see you guys dealing with large groups over in the US, high school, college, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Is there any tips that you would give to people who were in that situation to, to manage such a large group and get the outcomes that you want out of, out of everyone, if that's even possible? Sure. Um, first and foremost, I mean, and this is going to go into coaching philosophy and methodology for me, at least a little bit is um, coming from, and this is, this is universal, I think for all sports, but especially in American football, I think that's like our greatest exposure early on here. That was my biggest exposure. Um, film is everything. So the things that occurred from a learning and coaching standpoint off the field, meaning recording practices, recording whatever's happening in an individual session, was equally, if not more important than what was happening on the field. So I think a little of that has stuck with me along with um, working with and, and learning from high level coaches and that when you have a large group like that and it becomes very challenging to coach and get very specific with an individual because of how large your group is, you wanna be conscious of course of um, the time that you're using, you wanna be conscious of coaching everybody. The time that you can use off the field, off the track, wherever, whatever it may be, is, is equally as important. So where that comes into play is like filming sessions, filming repetitions. And I can, I can get into that a little bit more, but um, largely that's a big piece. Then what happens when we're in our sessions and uh, again, kind of getting philosophy related or, or just kind of background on me. I think one of the things, my, my strength, I love being with large groups. But one of my weaknesses, actually, I feel like is is my cueing, my coaching ability, my words that I use in a session. So a lot of what I use to inspire the programming of our of our sessions comes more from the kind of uh, perspective of a motor learning skill acquisition, applying constraints, using methods that the words don't necessarily um drive what the athlete is doing and I think from something that's so dynamic and so um, complex as sprinting as really any field movement that's probably more in the direction that we want to be anyway I don't think words are always the answer so with that said um, not to get too off on it but um, a couple things that we really like to use we like to use some of the motor skills that maybe they might have missed out in their um, uh, lower school physical education um, is from a skips, gallops, uh, certainly introducing and progressing towards bounding. Um, that, that is definitely something that's certainly, um, that's really meaningful for us. And the, and the progression has to be such that, again, it's not working with one individual. So using some of those kind of, um, methods of practice that I feel more so are kind of in the uh, realm of, of motor learning versus X's and O's, strength and conditioning, uh, track and field, I think has been really beneficial there. Um, in addition to that, I already mentioned constraints. Um, we actually, in a, in a group session, especially like we're not going to bring out wickets, certainly for our young, young kids, but for some of the more advanced ones, I'm actually not using that in our large group setting because I feel like it is something that needs to get a little more specific. And um, generally coaches are probably surprised by that because a lot of what I share on social media includes wickets, but that's generally in different sessions. That's like an additional session that we're doing 
or it's something that I have a little more time with our athletes on a Saturday or something like that, that it's actually not going to be with our teams or sports on campus. So a lot of the constraint-based drills, um, dowel and implement related sprints and, and what have you have, have been really for the purpose of filling a void or, or, or filling what we've, what I feel like we're missing when we're not using a wicket drill, which I think is a very, um, an excellent constraint-based, um, drill. So, uh, using some of those and then, uh, plyometrics are, are really important as well. And I think what you can do general strength wise, I think a lot of that, those, those kind of concepts can be applied, can be applied to a large group and they're still going to be able to, again, it's creating an environment that they're, that the athletes are still able to create their own solution for whatever the problem is. It's not necessarily, it's not going to be something that's going to be these words or what we use. It's more so this is the environment. These are the challenges that we lay out and an athlete again. And that, that goes into what I said about being able to look at our athletes over time and see, seeing how an athlete gallops, seeing how an athlete learns how to bound sometimes teaches me more about what we want to use on the sprint side of things or some of the cues or some of the tools that we want to use on the sprint side of things that is going to teach me even more using some of those drills than being out, just going out and watching a sprint. A sprint could be flying by me. It's way faster, very dynamic. Sometimes it's hard for us as coaches to create solutions um, to the, the problems that the athletes lay in front of us. So those are some of the methods. Hopefully I wasn't just uh, talking in a circle, but um, again, kind of locomotive plyometrics with, with galloping, skipping, bounding is really important to us. Um, Constraint-based sprinting. And at the end of the day, it comes back to sprinting at maximal efforts. With the younger athletes, it's generally going to be races or tag or something like that. Whereas a higher level, more advanced, more experienced athlete, high schoolers that have a little more ego, maybe um, races, absolutely, but also maybe some timing or some other metrics that we can put on there that we know that they're sprinting for maximal effort. And at the end of the day, that's going to be, we're going to get something out of that as well. Superb. Thanks, John. We'll come back to that constraints-based approach in a second. Um, Michal, do you, did you have anything to add there? Yeah, I, I, I think, again, just the, the coaching pedagogy kind of on it is paramount. And I'd be, be similar to John in the approach that we try and have is that the, the coach understands why they're doing it and not just a list of what they do. I think one of the most powerful principles of training you can combine is, is progression and variety. And I always encourage them to, if you can create progressive variety based off the situation and the environment you've created and you know how to work it with your group, because we can't always do the best. We can only do the best available because environments will change, group numbers will change, your, 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 what you have available to you has changed. So one of the parameters that we use is for all age groups within youth is firstly, we allow them to express speed. And the coach, dependent on how structured it is, with it being a little more structured as they age, like we could be emphasizing acceleration or max velocity at the latter ages, earlier ages, it's more exploratory. But the coach stands in, and this is the coaching pedagogy, their observation zone, be it the first five yards of the sprint that they're sprinting for 20 to 25, and actually stands in that observation zone and, and observes what's happening. The next part, and it's a whole part, whole approach. The next part we do is teach speed. And to me, that's where you need to slow down to speed up. And um, what we try and do is break the emphasis down into different skill acquisition parts. Uh, typically, being within the teach or the part being, if you've timed three drills, which would be a drill that emphasizes on the control of force, slow down to speed up, 
then a drill that emphasizes the production of force. And lastly, your ability to redirect that force cyclically. And those three things, can you control it, produce it and redirect it, slow down to speed up as the athlete progresses, gets better acutely or with time and age, you increase the complexity of it. But then to me, the real, um, the real key to seeing if it was successful is then our compete phase. So they express, teach, compete. And that then is where we see that it come together, that they compete internally against the clock or their previous best time, or they compete externally against a person within the group they're training with or as a whole team and who wins it. And you stand back to see what you, did you try and implement? Did you see the change in an open chain environment? Um, and like, like John said, sometimes we'll get them. It doesn't mean you have to go back all the way to the exact perfect technical model. If you're really trying to get a forward lean and let's say you're coaching an aspect with a constraint, you may get them to compete maximally with the constraint also if you're in a smaller group. Because like John, I don't want to be carrying out 60 wickets, you know, or, or sorry, 600 wickets out there as well to set up for people. So same with resisted stuff. And, and I did it. And it was about a two hour setup for a group of 60 athletes with sleds and stuff. We'll get into that later. Yeah. So and the other last thing is just looking at different approaches, like a waterfall approach can be a big, big help as well while standing in that observation zone. And then you might be able to individualize it. I mean, one-to-one -one training is the best training you can do, but who has 24 hours to individual training with everyone. So that's all I got on that. Perfect, mate. Uh, Alan, did you unmute your mic to say anything or was that? Yeah, just I, it made me reflect on my time working in the in the rugby academy um, and that like stress of like trying to figure out, shit, how am I going to watch like layers of 10 kids at a time and give them cues? And what we ended up doing um, was we formed, so we, they, would, they would sprint or they would run fast or they would do a variation um, twice a week. And I would pick four guys um, within a session. And usually we were working with the backs, which was about 15 to 20 kids. And over the course of two weeks, um, we'd, we'd be able to, or I'd be able to give feedback specifically to them. And then we'd also use this other thing where, so the warm-up was um, like progressive through the weeks, but it had variability within the warm-up. So kind of like me all saying there, like, progression and variability is key you can't just do the same thing over and over again adaptation stagnates probably more importantly people just get pissed off and they don't want to do it it's so boring um so what we did was we varied it we progressed it we would pick four guys we could give them feedback and then we had breakout zones so um we actually i actually stole this off an england um rugby coaching award when i was like 18 and they had little um they had little skill breakout zones and we pull four out we go over the thing that they hadn't done maybe correctly, whether it was a scissor, maybe it was a dribble, maybe it was an A-march, whatever it was. We'd spit them back into the warm-up and it would give them another chance to go through it. And we would do that on a cyclical basis. And what we saw, and this is, again, referring back to what we all said about um, maturation, what we saw was everybody got faster and everybody got technically better. Now, was that because of maturation? Definitely had an influence. They were 16, 17, everybody's getting stronger and bigger. Um, but certainly from a technical element, that actually solved a problem that existed for me within a setting that John's talking about where there's just loads of kids running around and it's very hard to see what's going on. Um, so, yeah, that, that's just a personal experience that I, that I kind of employed and it seemed to work quite well. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Alan, Michal and John. 
So over in part two, we have a little chat and continue this conversation around speed training for youth athletes. But Michal takes us down the track of using resisted speed training. Then we have some more hints and tips for working with this population. And we finally finish off with a Q&A based on some questions that got sent to us on Twitter and Instagram upon request. So thank you to all those people. So really interesting part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientists to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial. And now back to the episode with Alan, John, and Michal. Sorry to move things on a little bit quickly, but we are halfway through already. Just coming to Michal for the next one. As we get more technical, potentially kids get further on in the development, a little bit older. Tips to coaching the key sprint positions, key speed positions that we're, um, we're looking to hit. We can go individual, we can go big groups. Is there any tips that you would give coaches out there on that aspect? Yeah, I mean, it cropped up. They're just the, some of the cueing, know the cues that of what you're trying to achieve, the stimulus and how that is you're trying to get the adaptation. I think just a story from mine is I, I mentioned about control force, produce force and uh, redirect force. That's solely for the coach. I never used the word force with an athlete because I did it once and I came back and after five, six weeks and he was actually just stomping the ground. That was his interpretation of force and acceleration, just trying to make as loud a stomp as he could. So you have to be very careful with, with the internal and external. I think just on a coaching or a cueing element, one of the most neglected and um, areas is, you know, it's always triple extension, hip extension, but sometimes we forget about one of the success I have had is encouraging hip flexion in it and maximal because it's cyclical in nature and that maximal hip flexion, something simple as putting a dot on their knee to get them front side mechanics to lift the dot will actually in turn through a cyclical action, make them uh, get into hip extension and it's punch, push, punch, push. I know Ken has, Ken Clark, be a good friend of mine. And, uh, you know, he's always emphasized that as well. It was always one that, that stuck with me. To be honest, the two, the two lads, Alan and John, could probably give you a lot more of the technical areas that they see and work with. Some of the things that I try and do is sometimes work with track and field coaches and implementing different things to complement because it's so multifactorial. And just some of the stuff I think is key is not only we're, we're, we're left with so much limited time to work on sprint, sprint and especially in team sports, that it's important that you can intertwine some of the ancillary aspects of this within your warm-up within your preparatory phases that, that, that aid and support sprinting. So, you know, one of the big things we have in our warmups is uh, just in a simple ramp is we focus on over a progression, we'll focus on um, a more of a global postural control, which is that heel to toe, which could be as simple as having their hands behind their head, elbows back. And if ever they can see their elbows and their peripheral vision, that's when your chest drops, your hip, you're going to have your hips behind you, which you can't have an acceleration. Uh, then we'll move to more proximal control, like a three bucket pose. 
um, and ensuring the hip and the pelvis is stable, move that to some dynamic movements in it. And then, you know, we might intertwine some aspects of distal integrity. I think the ankle is one of the areas that's, that's really neglected and just something as simple as putting a coin under the ball of someone's foot, having to push into the coin and then lift their toes off the ground and then progressing that further into proper kind of plyometrics. This is some of the small stops we intertwine outside of it. Well, specific to the, the sprint aspect, one thing for majority of a lot of the athletes we train now at Athlete Train Health are um, they're team sport athletes. You know, they're not out and out technical sprinters. They're team sports and they're limited with time and actually have one of our coaches is doing a PhD and I'm supervising it. It's looking at pickup acceleration and transitional acceleration. And we're actually looking at some of the aspects of being able to, for that, being able to have them drop their center of mass and do a false step and actually reposition their body properly on an anticipated go call. So moving from walk to sprint or jog to sprint or sprint to sprint and actually looking at some of that pickup acceleration, it's a kind of a whole different area. One of our coaches, Mark Pryor is looking for, but again, we just using some con constraints to try and get the blended approach of how do we affect it kinetically most and how do we affect proper kinematics so um and look some of the key positions the guys can probably speak to you know that we do look for that is where that came from for me was a technical sprint coach telling me that from a team sport you never want to step back to go forward whereas you actually do you want to actually step within your center of mass to gain momentum into your sprint um so some elements like that and just looking at no no daylight between the knees trying to minimize that really emphasizing front side mechanics a lot of where the key position starts with me is postural control from heel that's the the key foundation of me postural control cool thanks mate john anything to add there yeah yeah well i, I mean of course that was those were a lot of great points um and anybody that's kind of i guess ever heard me discuss speed would know that um the altus kinogram method really changed my outlook on speed development um, and and kind of how I look at just a biomechanical approach to sprinting. So positions are are key and necessary for me as a coach, I think, to identify and look at a kinogram or look at any sort of still. You could look at a video. That's nice that you're able to, again, that's a big part of kind of my coaching methods, being able to slow things down. Um, you are limited because probably it's one dimensional, but you're probably not going to move about an athlete while they're sprinting anyway. Um, some of those still shots that you can find from those. Um, and you can put into a kinogram or put into some other, uh, whatever method really you want to look at those images. It's nice to see those still images as a coach. We can identify some changes over time. It might give us a hunch of something that's working versus something that's not. Um, when you, and again, that's something that you can really track over time. Um, when you start and our athletes, I like to educate our athletes on some of these positions. But I think that can be limiting in speaking about some of the very specific positions because the positions are just a representation of what's happening ultimately. It's not, although we can put those five positions in a kinogram and it's super helpful from a coaching and uh, observation standpoint, sprinting is just not, a, it's not just a collection of positions. It's really what happens to, to help those athletes find those positions. So again, it kind of then still comes back to us of, okay, if this is something that I'm seeing an athlete, maybe this is a position that I see them struggling with, maybe in full support, um, there's quite a bit of, of um, 
hindsight mechanics. Maybe there's um, something else that's going on that might be individual to the athlete or might be a little more global for our groups. I think that then might um, impact our programming and progressions or some of the constraints versus necessarily sitting down with an athlete and saying, hey, this is what you want to look like on toe off because they're going to be thinking about it. And again, it's just not a collection of, of positions. There's some drills that for context, we'll try to set up an athlete in that position and help them find that position. But again, it's ultimately about them feeling it more so than anything that I can sit them out, sit them down and talk to them about, or even coach on the fly as they're sprinting. Cool. Thanks, mate. I'm just going to come to Alan on a little bit of the point that's, that's been made and it's the, the ability to slow things down to actually pick up things that um that need to be addressed john mentioned the the galloping and the skipping to be able to do that is there anything that you do that may help younger coaches who are trying to develop speed but they're trying to do it whilst these guys and girls are, are sprinting maximally and thinking where do i start like, there's so much going on how can we help younger coaches to be able to understand where they should be spending their time um yeah, so I, th I think it was Michal actually that mentioned um, posture. So John's so bang on there. Like I started off life like kind of gramming everything and I was like, oh, <laughs> these shapes are awesome, but they're getting slower. What's going on? <laughs> um, and really what you realize is like the, the shapes are just, they tell you a snapshot of a, of a much bigger story. Um, how the athlete got to those shapes is really what we're after. Is Are they, and it took me a while to understand this concept, are they proximal to distal? Are they hip dominant versus knee dominant? Are they hip dominant versus spine dominant? Um, and once you start to recognize that pattern, um, and that's a really posturally isometric, um, isometric postural holds, um, is like isometric postural holds into reactive steps and marches, box drills, um, banded sled, banded walks, banded marches, banded exchanges, banded sled works, um, your dribbles, all those really basic lower down the pyramid exercises are such a great place to start because not only do they slow things down for the athlete and maybe even the coach, that's also a, something that nobody really speaks about. Sometimes slowing it down for the coach is really helpful as well. Um, it slows down and it contextualizes what it is that they're doing to try and achieve the shapes that we're talking about. Um, and I think that's really, really key. So, for example, um, with some of the younger guys that I work with, we'll literally just try some static A-frame holds with a ball overhead. Um, and then maybe I'll put a band above their head um, and be behind them holding it. And they've got to hold that shape and close their ribs down and control the diaphragm and understand how do I extend one limb and flex the other limb um, and keep that posture in a position where they feel strong and able to switch limbs effectively. And that can be something that's really, really simple that actually permits the coach to see what's going on and the, the pattern of movement that the athlete prefers, but most importantly, contextualizes what it is that we're trying to help them feel when they start to speed up the movement. And that stuff would go from into boom booms, um, which is basically just A switches, um, into boom booms that move, to high knees, to dribbles. Um, and I think dribbles are just the one of the best ways to begin to coach people how to live in that elastic environment of running upright and running efficiently. I think it coaches people to, like John was saying, I love that, like the dot on the knee and pick your knee up to give you effectively what we're trying to tell them is 
let's see, can you separate your limbs? Can you prepare enough early enough to hit down with force? And can you do it elastically and stay tall? And the dribble is such a good way to bring that down and contextualize those things. And often what you can get if you're on the track, um, you can get sound feedback, you can get visual feedback, and then probably most importantly, you get lots and lots of kinesthetic feedback from the athlete. They can feel it if they're doing it right or wrong. They can tell if they've got a soft ankle or a stiff pretense ankle. And I think when you start to come up with drills, come up, nobody's come up with a dribble. It's been around forever. But if we start to use dribbles or certain drills that give really solid feedback to the athlete without the coach having to go into loads and loads of detail, I think that's where I would start as a younger coach. And even now coaching day in, day out, it's, I still use it. Um, even with the best athletes that I work with, the, those guys are still... I recognize that my left foot just wasn't tensed enough. I wasn't creating enough punch or sound and they go back and they fix it. Maybe we'll do a couple of box series drills to re kind of almost try and find the coordination to pretense and hit and bounce a little bit more. So that, that would be, that would be my advice. And then from an acceleration point of view, just go on the sled, like a heavy sled is such a good teaching and training tool. Like it trains, yes, Michal. <laughs> it, it, like it trains the physical qualities necessary to increase your ratio of force, your horizontal impulse. And it also makes you feel really dumb if you don't do it right. And I think that's such a great coaching tool. Like what's, what's better than like feeling stupid when you've done it wrong and actually, oh, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to push my hips through. I'm not going to move my back up and down because I feel like I'm going to get pulled off the edge of the world. That's actually a, re that's a really strong training tool without much coaching intervention. And that to me is a win-win. So much nodding going on there. Good work. John, were you, did you want to unmute your mic? to? Yeah, uh, yeah, I was point? just, yeah, I mean, to basically get a verbal nod, give Alan a verbal <laughs> nod, I suppose. I think, I think one of the things is I've, like I said, I, I mean, I like to film everything. I like to um, try to keep track of everything and, and have a record of, of whatever we've done, whether it be from, a again, a team group standpoint or the individual. But one thing that I always urge young coaches to be cautious of is, is losing the moment. You were talking about like the sounds. And I think that's such a big piece, not only to what's happening in the session, but also to the mental imagery of what you're imagining yourself to accomplish, whatever you want the rep to look like. I think the sound the feel of it. And that's not just for the athlete. I think that's also for the coach. So one thing that I, I express, express caution with, with young coaches is I like to film, but you also can't be so wrapped up into recording the rep at the right angle that you miss the moment and you lose the moment. There's got to be an ele element of that as well. Cool. Michal? Yeah, just real two quick points, just one on the constraint and non-constraint. I totally agree. Building off what Alan was talking about, you know, the, the, from a non-constraint standpoint, I love the pogo hop because I think you can cue them to externally, you know, to get them to perform it. But for them to internally feel what they should be feeling, slowing it down, like one of the common things I notice is people do pogo hops with their toes pointed down like a ballerina and just telling them that it should be like you're sitting down, tapping to the beat of a song, and the contact there is that mid, mid foot or the ball, the foot and getting that feel. And then to start letting them know, can you feel the stiffness? Can you feel that it's more like a golf ball hitting the ground and less like a tennis ball and there's stiffness in it. And then transcending that, slowing it down into when you're running upright, be relaxed and actually feel that stiffness and that uh, contact the ground. And then the last thing real quick, just totally agree on the constraint. I've just had huge success with constraint-based approach for young athletes just to just the younger they are even it's unstructured 
but it's random stimuli. I'll put them over speed stuff. Just give them a random varied stimulus while there's this rapid learning effect. And even at that eight to 12, reinforcing and introducing them to different forms of training modalities, because that physiologically, the brain's actually pruning itself during that period of time and, and, and honing in on, on, on neural pathways. So just those two points, I, I fully agree. And I think it's really important to emphasize. Perfect. Thanks, mate. Any questions people have got? Chat box, Q&A. We've had one come in, which we'll get to uh, in the last 10 minutes. But just before we do, coming back to you, John, and you spoke about it right at the start, introducing games and speed training with youth athletes. How would you go about that? And when? You've probably answered it already, but how? Yeah, I think I, I think fun also always needs to be something that's at least the initial thought of what we're doing. I mean, the kids generally, the, the students that I see, I mean, they might sign up for my personal fitness class and their parents made them sign up for it. <laughs> but generally they're in there uh, probably to better themselves for a sport um, or in and of itself, that training is fun and enjoyable. And I want that to always be with them no matter really who it is so to me the when i think as early as day one i think there's certain things again why why use words to coach something when we can just set out an environment for them and they can go have fun and probably accomplish what we wanted to anyway so i think it can be as early as possible and i know this is a super simple answer but it can be as early as possible and how i mean it could be uh, a wide range of things again a, a game is a a race to tag to sharks and minnows to something that might involve a, some sort of implement or ball or something that might not, but what's your favorite, John, what's your favorite, what goes down uh, an absolute storm every time you pull it out? Uh, sharks and minnows is our game. That's, that's generally like, that might be our um, warm up on a daily basis. That might be the way that we kind of do some of our um, quote unquote energy system development. And, and a lot of my team sport coaches, especially with like the American mentality. And I don't mean that in such a negative way as I have an American flag behind me, but um, is especially in American football, like we've got to run our quarter gassers and half gassers. And that's how we get mentally tough for, for our sport. Obviously that's not something that I agree with. And, and generally when our coaches are out there and they're able to see these games and they're able to see that our athletes, their effort is tenfold, if not more, uh, when we're playing a game and they're uh, just about on their face to finish because of the effort that they put out there and they laid it all out there. Unlike what it would probably look like when it's a half gasser that those kids that are at the top are really just cruising and jogging. The kids at the bottom just feel bad about themselves because everybody's beating them and everybody's doing it easily. And why are we doing something that's so tough for me, but easy for them? Um, that's, that's generally what we see when it's especially like some sort of condi conditioning um, idea. I'd much rather make it something that's fun that again whether it be conditioning and it's kind of negative thoughts this is hard this isn't fun um and taking those thoughts away from them and having them just go out and have fun or a technical aspect of um you know again i, I can coach them and cue them on certain things or they can go out and sprint as fast as possible and hopefully the cues and the and the drills on the front end had enough context to carry with them there so again trying to take like whatever we can throw at them to take the thought out of it a little bit um is is something that i'm absolutely all for and games are a great way to do that as as early as you got them superb anyone that's unsure sharks and minnows quick explanation um it is basically it's tag 
Okay. And you have a shark or more than one shark. And ultimately, again, just using an American football field, you go from sideline. It doesn't matter what, what field, but you go from sideline to sideline. The minnows have to run from sideline to sideline. You probably have a couple sharks because we have a large, we have potentially a very large group. So you have a few sharks, you tap a minnow and they're now a shark. So now you have, if you tap two minnows and there were two sharks initially, now you got four sharks that are tapping more minnows. And then ultimately your last person. And yeah, it's still ends up typically being the fastest, most athletic person there. But again, that person that's at maybe a higher level of athleticism, so to speak, and bear with me on those words there, but um, usually that person is probably the most taxed because they're doing the most running. So I think uh, it gets a, it, it becomes a little more relative um, to who the athlete is and who their ability is and the extent at which they're, they're running in quote unquote conditioning um, that, that, presents really well for us and it's it's a fit for no matter who we have out there because really my my track and field season I could have everyone from a sixth grade girl that's only there because she's trying to find a sport to a you know potential future collegiate sprinter um, on the boys or girls side as seniors so uh, meaning in sixth grade here is about 11 years old on the 17 or 18 and it's a little bit of everybody and again we can we can find a way that that's still appropriate um, for that large group. Love it, John. Alan, did you unmute or was that, that was a fleeting unmute? Yeah, sorry. I, I, I did mean to, but I just clicked it very quickly. <laughs> um, it got me, it got me thinking, games got me, me thinking about a conversation that I've been having recently a lot. And it's about this idea that some coaches and, and even some athletes don't believe that isolated speed training will allow them to be quicker in the game um, for whatever reason that they, they, they argue against that. And I think the game stuff that John's talking about is such an, a great way to bridge the gap between the two. And very, very quickly, because I know we don't have time, I would refer to that as the gray zone, the disconnect between track, linear, straight line speed and lots of technical work into what is a very chaotic and highly um, almost combative, um, stressful environment. And it comes down to this concept that I think uh, called attentional reserve. And when I am... Um, not familiar with something um so in a game scenario or a match play scenario my ability to to actually focus on what i'm trying to do from a technical point of view or an evasion point of view is limited um and by introducing these games throughout once you once you've developed some level of competency in straight line speed i think you have to stress it in a game style environment you have to stress it in curvy linear multi-linear 3d loads of layers of competition and, and decision making because if you don't the jump from linear speed to the game is just too high that it's very likely that it's not going to transfer across so i actually think that what john's talking about there on those cool games and and those games can become more game representative or situationally representative over time is actually the key to the transfer of of sport speed or game speed um, is what we've been having our conversation on lately. So um, I think that the, the games discussion is, is hugely pivotal and, and important right now. Um, so yeah, I just thought I'd add in my two cents and I'll unmute myself. <laughs> yeah, I love it, mate. <laughs> Again, questions, pop it in the Q&A on the chat and we'll get to them in five minutes. Um, Michal, resisted sprints. Did a little celebration when it got mentioned a minute ago. Let's have a little chat around that and how it right. can be used with... Um, youth athletes when it comes to wanting to get them fast how long have you got um, <laughs> five minutes <laughs> <laughs> no, I, don't know. I mean look yeah 
I, I think uh, I, I joked with that, but I should get an award for not talking about resistance sprints <laughs> for the last 50 minutes. I don't think I've mentioned them yet. So, um, but no, to be honest, I, I, I suppose really with, with five minutes, what I'll just do, in my opinion, is clarify what it is and what it isn't. Um, and just give a few examples. You, you know, I, I joke there, and please don't put just me with a big thumbs up to Alan on, on social media, or I'll, it'll become even more polarized, but that's all that I do is resisted sprinting. <laughs> but um, because what it is, is it's a tool in a toolbox. And, and I've always said the resisted sprinting should supplement a well-rounded sprint program, and it should not substitute for unresisted sprinting or traditional strength training. It should complement it, but not replace it. So, you know, what I do is I call resisted sprinting a horizontal strength training exercise or a sprint specific training as well. Sprint specific strength or horizontal strength training. You know, where I use it most is I use it in the transition phase from the turf where we're working on our jump and sprinting ability or trying to improve the power to body mass ratio. I use it in between that and when we get into the weight room or your traditional strength training. And that's where I put my horizontal strength training in. I think it's, it's most effective in improving the initial acceleration phase. And you say, well, how's that? And you say, well, you can't argue with physics because, you know, to improve initial acceleration is horizontal force divided by body mass, you know? So it, that's what it improves. And then here's the thing, it can be bad. If you use it as a pill for every ill or solely isolate it, you're only going to focus on the initial acceleration phase. And what's going to happen is you'll probably get a maladaptation in your actual max velocity or ability in how much of a peak you can achieve. Um, can it have benefits? Can it have benefits kinetically and kinematically? Most important to me is it, that's the chicken and the egg is the kinetics versus kinematics and how one, one helps the other is that it might not increase your net force but what it might do is optimize the direction of force and what it might do is increase the horizontal uh, force application or at least the capability of it and the degradation in sprint mechanics can actually lead to positive chronic alter alterations in sprinting for example you could just hone in on the forward lean and that in turn might affect the orientation of the foot strike now it comes into the technical element of well, what about it from a technical standpoint? I say, well, I'm doing a sled push here. Of course, it's going to affect sprint mechanics. You're bloody pushing it with your hands. Like, you know, so, but what I am trying to do is hone in on one area, be it that horizontal, that forward lean. And then what that can do is it may actually work as a progression to apply a total body horizontal force, which I use sometimes sled pushing. I only ever use sled pushing at really heavy loads. And the reason being, it's an anterior constraint. Whereas if you put it at light loads and you try to push it at, at faster velocities, you'll actually find that it gets out too far in front, your lower back rounds, your hips cock up and you lose all postural integrity and you're not optimizing the orientation of force. So the other thing is, yeah, you talked, you just mentioned there, Rob, about technical ability. I'll kind of finish on this is that just, just take the sled push, which I use preparatory to going to sled pulling only if I've time, is I'll just use a sled push as a progression from a wall drill. I'll just call it a dynamic wall drill. So you are in a static position to where you're working on that load and lift technique, and then you just start moving it horizontally. What I think we need to do is start looking at some resisted strength training as a horizontal strength training exercise and treat it like a back squat. Would you apply to a team would you apply this is what i'll leave you with 
would you apply percent body mass to a big group? No, you'd spend hours trying to get the velocity of the bar or 87.5% in the hope that it transcends to sprint specific, maybe um, alterations. Well, well, would you also just prescribe back spot and walk back into your office and sit down and do something? No, you'd coach it. And you have to coach resisted sled training. You have to coach angles. You have to ensure you treat it like you're coaching a traditional strength training exercise because it's not just going to fix it for you. You got to ensure and find a load that optimizes the orientation of the foot strike, the forward lean, whatever you're trying to emphasize, be it you're putting an emphasis on trying to increase the kinetics or you want to focus more on the kinematics. So that's my, I think I kept it to five minutes, Rob, but that's you a little. Did. Um, you absolutely did. There's, there's plenty of nodding going on there as well, which I, uh, which I, I love. One last one. This might be good for you, John, given the, um, the groups. Uh, question as well how to keep kids entertained slash engage between reps yeah so that's that's actually an absolutely great question and i do think it's going to depend on the setting i think it's going to depend on who you have um not just as a, from a student athlete standpoint but um in my instance i mean perfect example i just said that i might have everyone from a young lady in in sixth grade 11 years old to a young man that's 18 years old and they're generally in the same program and doing some similar at least training methodologies what i've done personally in large and i'm talking about 80 to 100 students probably at once is if you have the opportunity number one if it's if it's that large scale um hopefully hopefully you have the opportunity to hire or find somebody that's <laughs> going to help you um because the first year so i've been the strength and conditioning coordinator here for eight years um, track and field coach for five. So my first year, I was like, I'm just going to do it like the strength and conditioning program. I'm on my own there and I can do that. Um, and that was such a failure because I did have a large number of students. It was immensely successful how many students wanted to come out to the track, but we did have a lot of standing around, a lot of waiting around. I'm generally low volume to begin with. So it's not going to be something that we're just out there just doing stuff for what, whatever extent of time we have. So what I've done, again, I'm in a school setting, so I found the right people that are almost going to be more so than coaches. They're like engagement coaches. So I'll split them up into groups with the primary idea solely of, uh, of, of shrinking those groups a little bit, spreading them out. And they're not necessarily, they might be, there might be a training quality that's accomplished at a group. Maybe we have a plyometric station and then a, a fly 30 station or something like that. Um, that is applicable to and, and kind of conducive to both. Um, but then we might have another station that's, uh, it could be one of those fun games. It could be something that, again, is kind of just keeping them engaged to the, the, the entire session. So, and then in individual, like if you, number one, if you're, if you're talking about a dozen um, athletes and it's only you, there's a couple ways you can do it. I've seen great coaches that have instructed on specifics. It might be positions. It might be just general um, movement signatures that um, if you educate your, your athletes enough on, they might be able to provide some feedback in themselves, um, which you still have to be cautious of because I'm super cautious about my own words because sometimes I struggle to say the right thing you might then get something even worse from uh, a young student athlete, of course, that might be a cue that's just completely maybe unhelpful. So, um, you know, I think that's the best route. I think there might be a little bit more 
detail that I would have to know of, of who it is, but I think there's ways that you can stay engaged. It could be um, having the athletes reflect on their previous rep um, by themselves. If you record their rep, maybe you record every other. So I record one athlete while the next athlete's going, athlete number one's able to view their own film and give their own uh, personal feedback to themselves and kind of see what they, um, they, how they feel after watching um, that repetition. Um, so I know that's, I know it's a little more complicated than just simply giving an answer. Um, I think finding the best, I think we all have strengths and qualities that make the athletes enjoy their time with us. And that's engagement in themselves in, in itself. So I think using your strengths, using the qualities that probably got those athletes out there to train with you to begin with, um, is going to be way more helpful than telling you how we necessarily do it. Again, the, the coaches that I hire for my track and field program, I have an, a brilliant hurdles coach, everybody else for the most part, brilliant distance running coach. Um, but everybody else generally are people on campus that I know are going to be engaging. I know they're going to encourage students to come out for our program, be a part of it. Um, and, and ultimately, um, kind of just, uh, create a, a super positive environment for our students. And that's, that's ultimately engagement in itself. If the athlete wants to be there and likes to be there, they're not, you know, um, disengaged. Now they might get chatty with their friends, their kids, but again, that's ultimately, it's about finding your, it's the art of coaching, so to speak, versus a, a scientific question that I could give you. John, superb. Thank you very much. Well, we'll, we'll round it up there. But really appreciate your insights, giving up some of your evening slash afternoon to, uh, to join us. Alan, Michal, John, I'll speak to you, three, all three of you soon. Thanks for tuning in to episode 471 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you got as much out of this episode as I did, frantically writing notes as these guys shared their experiences and their knowledge. Big thanks to Rock Daisy, Vald and Team Builder for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in. I look forward to chatting to you next time.